Hello, welcome back to another episode of the Uncle Nacho Show. We're here at the Colored Girls Museum in Philadelphia with Vashti Dubois in Germantown, executive director and founder of the museum. Vashti, how are you doing today? I'm fantastic. My mind is a little blown because it's been a busy three days, but I'm, I'm actually really good today. Thanks for asking. Yeah, tell us about your week and I guess more specifically yesterday where we were part of the Alliance and Hatch Lab and what that was all about. Yesterday, I had the great pleasure of being in a room with probably some of the most creative minds in Philadelphia, doing what the name says, like hatching some brilliant ideas for how we're going to make this world certainly a more interesting place, and I do believe a better place. Um, And I think we came up with some really cool projects, you know, sitting in our different groups throughout the course of the day. It was also really fantastic to meet so many dynamic filmmakers. It was that was that was incredible. Like I, I only knew of one person's work by name, and that was Michelle's. And so the other three artists, I actually didn't know their work. So that was that that was really great. Can you tell us how you got involved with the Alliance and Hatch Lab? Oh, so, so last summer I was I was a NEMAC fellow, and so I was part of a group of artists and thought leaders who met for four days in Utah at Sundance Film Festival. And the objective of that meeting was really to um, talk about the work that we were doing and try to contextualize that in terms of how we were forwarding social change in our communities. And that's where I met Wendy and several other artists who were going to be part of this Hatch Lab, um, some from New Orleans and Chicago and other places. And so it was really exciting, another really intense sort of creative and intellectual experience. Utah was beautiful, but we really didn't get to see our rooms very much because we were working pretty much from from 8.30 in the morning and up until about 8.30 at night. So by the time we got back, we just wanted to go to sleep. Yeah, shout out to Wendy. And in reading, you know, and part of your bio on the Alliance, it mentions that you've been working in nonprofits for over 30 years uh, as a leader. Can you tell us about some of that work? And as they state that you've left your impact on organizations, including the Treehouse Books, Children's Art Carnival, Haymarket People's Fund, the Leeway Foundation, and the Historic Church of the Advocate, to name a few. Sure. I mean, I I started working in a nonprofit. I can't even, choose. I can't even remember. But beginning in Boston as a, uh, a development consultant for, an, for a social change organization, I never thought I would be doing development, but it was an opportunity to really work with the organization to do something that they weren't doing when I came in. I mean, I was actually hired to develop a broader base of support for young folks because I was younger then, and also folks of color because there were not many folks of color, frankly, being invited to give, interestingly enough, to this Art and Change Foundation. So that's why I came on board. But the other thing that was interesting to me is that they funded Haymarket People's Fund and its partner fund is here in Philadelphia, Bread and Roses. There's also another fund in New York. So there's a network of these funders. I believe that Haymarket is the oldest, founded by George Pillsbury. So they funded work that other nonprofits were doing, having an impact on on art and having an impact on social change. But they actually didn't fund art, which I thought was really interesting. They, you know, they funded climate, they funded racial justice, they funded health stuff, but there was really sort of a lack of, I think, understanding about the ways in which art and social change are really sort of tied up in each other. And I like to think that a significant part of the work I did there, as well as around sort of like race and and, and youth issues was really opening the organization up to thinking about the importance of funding art as a powerful engine for social change. And that's when I was living in Boston. And then when I moved back to New York, I actually went to work for the Art Carnival. And that was such a shift because working for a foundation in Boston, I was able to really think about the work I wanted to do and know that we could fund it. Whereas, you know, sort of like returning to like... Um, a traditional, I, I will say, sort of nonprofit, 
the issues around just trying to get funding to do the work and then trying to keep headspace so that you could actually do the work. And it was a fantastic organization. Children's Art Carnival is one of the oldest um, arts organizations in New York City that really sort of grew out of black folks not having an outlet to both teach and learn their own art making. And, and when I arrived at the organization, we weren't working with adults, we were actually working with young people. Um, so the work was brilliant, but really the struggle to get funding um, was really ongoing. And so when I left New York and came to Philadelphia, I went to work for the Girl Center, which working with adjudicated and delinquent girls between the ages of 13 and 18. And it was probably, next to this, it was probably like the best job I ever had because we were working with young women in the juvenile justice system. We saw young women who were, the Girl Center was the last stop before they would put you in placement or, or, um, or boot camp for an infractions that could range from truancy to, um, to assault. And then it was also a step-down program. So if you were coming back from residential or you were coming back from boot camp, we were the transition spot, and we had 40 girls per cycle. So the most girls we might have in would be maybe 50 girls. And it was a, so it's called a holistic treatment program. So the idea was that they would get everything they needed there. So they get case management, social work if they needed, education, therapeutic. But nobody got like a full education. Like you got three credits but you didn't get all of your credits. And so if you left our center after a year, like in addition to having, you know, been caught up in the juvenile justice system, you were then returning to school behind your peers. And so one of the things that I came in to do was really think about how we could manage to let young women leave that space and not be further behind than they already were. And so one approach, I mean, I went to St. Anne's in, in Brooklyn, and I, you know, had the privilege of having an education that was really a powerful art-centric education, and everything I learned sort of moved through that lens, and I was able to bring that kind of thinking to the Girl Center, and so we were able to bring credits into the center. We were able to change the way that young women were receiving therapy because they had traditional talk therapy, which is really not that effective, I don't think, for any young folk, but it's really not effective for young women because young women love to talk, and they'll talk a lot and tell you nothing. So our therapy really provides, I think, one was a safe way for young women to really delve into their own feelings, but also to provide a really sort of concrete way of looking at, you know, where a young woman is on her healing path because the art therapy actually speaks. It's not, you know, it's not something just coming out of your mouth. It's either the dance that you're doing, it's the visual art that you're creating, it's the music that you're doing. And we can actually read that text and notice how you're doing. And so the Girl Center was really uh, probably next to Wesleyan, which is my undergraduate, was probably in the world, the first iteration of the Colored Girls Museum. It didn't have a name at the time. I didn't realize that that's what I was doing. But the, the principles were really the same, that in order for healing or even conversation to take place, it's really important. I think it's important for everybody, but I think it's especially important for women of color to have an environment that encourages you to want to speak in whatever way you speak, right? And that encourages you to heal. So within six months of being at the Girl Center, we did what I like to call extreme center makeover. Our girls were divided into groups of 10. They were all assigned an artist, and they were given six weeks, and they were paid to do it to come up with a plan for how they wanted to transform their part of the center that they were assigned. And then we opened the center to the public after that six-week transformation, and it was incredible. And our young women weren't artists. Like, nobody came in as a painter or mosaic artist, but the ability to just, like, teach the skill and then allow the skill to do both the community-building work and the healing work, that was my work at the Girl Center. And so... You know, working on those other issues really became 
not easy, but like possible because producing something really does something to you, producing collaboratively, you know, putting staff in relationship with young people, actually doing something, not being sort of like forced into a hierarchical relationship. So it was, I mean, I love that job because I love the girls. I absolutely love them. And after that, you know, I worked for the city of Philadelphia. And then not long after that, I was executive director of Treehouse Books, which I call a literacy cafe in North Philadelphia. Really sweet little space on Susquehanna Avenue. And the mission is, you know, really to teach a love of of reading in young people. And I, you know, next to art making, like I love to read. And I always say before I could go anywhere, I went everywhere in a book. And so being able to work with young people, you know, first to, to seventh grade, who for the most part really had a hated reading and being able to once again create an atmosphere that really invited you to love reading and also being able to provide the tools that young people need to be able to be powerful readers. And and among those tools, quite frankly, is relevant reading material. You know, if you're not reading about things that have some resonance with you, you're not likely to give a damn about reading. And so, you know, that was another really sort of joyful job, just watching young people come to life around literacy. That was really fantastic. Um, and then I also worked at the Church of the Advocates, starting up their after-school program. They used to have one, but it became dormant. And so beginning that process for them before then stepping into this. And I held on to literacy for a long time. I'm still a literacy coach in different circles, but this is the thing that I now do full-time. So like I've been in this nonprofit world for a very long time. Thank you. So the mission of the Colored Girls Museum distinguishes herself by exclusively collecting, preserving, honoring, and decoding artifacts pertaining to the experience and her story of colored girls. The museum shall serve as a clearinghouse of multidimensional artifacts, objects, and information about colored girls. Equal parts research facility, exhibition space, gathering place, and think tank. This Colored Girls Museum is the first institution of its kind, which considers memoir in any form, as well as objects of personal and historical significance as evidence with empirical value. I guess going off of that, if you could, you know, if you want to elaborate on that or also talk about the concept of the, quote, ordinary, extraordinary colored girl. You know, we live in a world where, especially now with social media, where anybody can sort of like make themselves a star. And... uh, (laughs) And I think that beyond that, there's almost a disdain for the ordinary anything. Just like basic is not good enough. And in particular with the colored girl, I often say many of us were told the same thing by our parents. You know, you have to work 10 times as hard to get half as far. And what an incredible burden and how you know how are we to you know sort of build meaningful relationships forget about with other people but with ourselves if you know just who we are as as ordinary human beings isn't enough and I think that that's really true for the colored girl because we do have this burden of always feeling as though we have to be fierce we have to be fabulous we have to be magical. We have to be strong. We have to be powerful. And, you know, we're, we're multidimensional beings. You're never all one of anything. We're complicated. You know, I mean, this was just really personal for me. I think I'm really good, you know, in the extraordinary spaces of my life. It's a show. You know, you can always put that on. But I think where I wanted to reveal problems is you know, having compassion for and empathy for my ordinary self, my ordinary feelings, my ordinary looks, my ordinary children, my ordinary home, and just being okay with who I am. And you think that if you can't be okay with who you are, you fundamentally can't actually be okay. We return to to girlhood to really take a look at that, because that's where we got many of our messages about ordinary not being good enough and always trying to present to the world 
you know, a perfect picture of who we were, such that you don't even really figure out who you are. So this museum really does exist to celebrate the ordinary in the colored girl. And I say, you know, Venus is going to have a, a museum. She should. I hope so. Serena, Michelle Obama, Beyonce, Shirley Chisholm, and countless other really incredible women because they've done extraordinary things. But even those extraordinary women have an ordinary girl in them, have ordinary about them. And there's no reason that we shouldn't celebrate that in as much as we celebrate these other things because it's the ordinary colored girl and the ordinary parts of ourselves that make the world do the thing that the world does. It makes the thing turn because it's millions and millions of us doing what we do that make, that make life what it really is. And so the Colored Girls Museum really does exist to celebrate and acknowledge that and to remind all of us, to remind myself that my ordinary is really good enough. It really is. And can you kind of talk about the choice? You mentioned this to me when I visited the other day about calling it the Colored Girls Museum. You know, when I grew up, I, I was born in 1961, and it's not on my hospital birth certificate, or I may have missed it. I actually have to go back and look at it. But most uh, folks born in that time period earlier, when you look at your birth certificate, it actually has your race on it. And what they would put on it in 1961 is colored. So I'm aware before we were Negro, we were colored folk. And then after, you know, we were Negro, I think we were Afro-American. And then after we were Afro-American, we were black. And then after we were black, we were African-American. And now we're like an assortment. So I'm aware of that history. I came of age. I went off to college the year after For Colored Girls Who Have Considered Suicide opened on Broadway. And so that sort of connection to the word colored. And many people, in thinking about that piece, that choreo poem by Antejaki Shange, think that for colored girls is actually about complexion, but if you look at the colors in the actual choreo poem, she's clearly not really talking about skin tone. She's talking about something else when she's talking about colored girls. And I think that what she's talking about are moods, you know, places of transition, lady in yellow, lady in blue, lady in red, lady in black, lady in brown, and all of them, when you really look at their stories, they're taught, you know, they're sort of taking us through a journey of growth and development and mood transitions. And so for the Colored Girls Museum, what I was really thinking about was how the colored girl gets colored by the world, whatever the hell the world wants. The world takes out its Crayola, its marker, its colored pencils. It colors us uppity. It colors us angry. It colors us promiscuous. It colors us weak. It colors us strong. It colors us sexless. I mean, it goes on and on and on. And then there are times when the colored girl herself takes that same Crayola crayon marker and we color ourselves. And so I really wanted to call attention to that word, that language, and that activity um, as it relates to the colored girl, really thinking about how she's colored. And then the girl, because, you know, someone asked me today why, why girlhood is important, why it's important to pay attention to that space. You know, and I asked them, I said, professionally, did you just walk to the place that you are in your life right now? And they said no, and I said there were a series of, of steps, right? Like you go to school, and then you went to college, and then you learned how to do these things. So girlhood is the place where you learn how to, like, where you become a human being, right? You become, you know, you learn how to live in your body. You learn how to walk. You learn how to talk. You become socialized to be femme in whatever way that gets expressed, but the most important thing is that that, you know, girlhood, as in childhood generally, that's the place where your sense of your humanity begins to form. And some of the seeds of who we're going to become in this world, the, the majority of those seeds, they're in the childhood, they're in the girlhood. So the great things and the not so great things. And so as grown-ups, if we can't, if we don't deal with our girlhood, 
like we're we're gonna have some real struggles in our womanhood because you know you you can revisit those places where there were things untended, and for the colored girl, quite often girlhood is cut short for a number of reasons because we take on some of the adult responsibilities in our households because we need to help out because the men in our communities begin to engage with us when we're girls as though we were women. And the confusion and fear that surrounds that, you know, there's all of, there are like a million articles coming out now about how, you know, young girls of color are seen as less innocent, are seen as less vulnerable. Um, So the world treats you as though you're older than you are. And so your girlhood gets truncated. And that's really problematic because you need your girlhood. You need your childhood. And so if you don't get it in childhood, then we got to get it back to you in some other way. And the thing is, you know, you don't, you know, childhood becomes a facet of us. It does, it's not something that once we become adults, it's gone. Like we all have these moments when we can look into our own faces or other people who know us can look at us and they don't see the man or the woman. They're like, oh, that's your that's your little boy I see there. That's your little girl I see there. And so we know that that child stays. And so in the case of the Colored Girls Museum, she deserves our attention. She deserves our love. And she deserves an opportunity. If her childhood was truncated, she deserves an opportunity to have that held and tended and offered back to her, I think. The museum opened in 2015. I guess, could you talk about the ideas leading up to the curation of it and then what the reception has been like in the last two years? It seems like yesterday and a lifetime ago at the same time because I guess it's all happened so quickly. So originally, the Colored Girls Museum opened as part of the Fringe Arts Festival because what I was really, it was a, it was a new concept. So Fringe Arts is a festival that's been happening in the city for over 19 years and it's, you know, it's a really fantastic platform for it for like new art experimental art you know ways it's the fringe arts festival so things that might be on the fringe um so that seemed to me to be a good place to land a new idea to test it which was certainly my original intention around the colored girls museum because i wanted a colored girls museum i thought it was a great idea i thought it was an interesting idea but i didn't know if anybody else would be interested in it right so Fringe Arts allowed me to think about it as a show rather than as, like, a museum. I just wanted to test the idea. And so I had two, uh, I had actually two women of color who I was going to be working, who were going to be the curator and associate director, and it didn't work out. And so I almost didn't do it because it was really close to when I actually needed to be reaching out to artists to ask if they would participate. And again, it's a new idea. So it's not like I had, like now you can come, I can say the Colored Girls Museum, you can look online, you can see pictures, and you can have a sense of what I'm talking about. But the concept was such a, an unusual one to people that I would say, yes, I want to do the Colored Girls Museum. And they would go, well, what's that? And I would say, well, if I said I wanted to do a shoe museum, what would you think I was talking about? And they'd be like, well, a museum about shoes. And I was like, okay, so Colored Girls Museum. But what was interesting about that was just like getting people to think about colored girls in the same sentence as museum. Mm. It was really disruptive. And that was fascinating to me. Just fascinating. So we, the description on that show, the Colored Girls Museum Open for Business, was the Colored Girls Museum disguised as a bed and breakfast, you know, organizes a collective of artists to install their, you know, objects that are significant to their experience of being colored girls. And I thought it was important to offer that interesting disclaimer about what the museum was. And I said in all the press on that was because if people knew that she was trying to be a museum, they might actually seek to harm her in some way. It's okay for the colored girl to be a bed and breakfast, to be in a position of service or hospitality, but it's not okay for the colored girl to see herself as a museum, as part muse, right? So 
when I lost my two, my two original partners, uh, Ian is like a longtime collaborator, arts collaborator. We went to school, we went to Wesleyan together. We've done a number of projects in New York together when I was still there. And he's a good friend, so I was complaining to him. Oh, my God, I'm not going to be able to do it. I lost my collaborators. And he said, why don't you postpone it? And I said, if I postpone it, I'm never going to do it because I've broken this promise to myself so many times that I think I've lost faith in myself. So I have to, it, I have to figure it out because if I put it down, I'm not picking it up. And he said, you know, okay, I mean, I guess we're going to do a Colored Girls Museum. And to myself, I did not say this to him, but to myself I said, how are we going to do a Colored Girls Museum? You're not in the Colored Girl. Like, that's stupid. So, <laughs> but he was offering help, so I knew not to say, you can't help me. And so then he said, well, I mean, I can, you know, I can do publicity. I can help with the arty, think through stuff. He goes, but like, what else are you going to need that you lost? And I said, well, my curator. And he said, well, who do you know who can do that? And I said, well, I only know one other person who I know for sure can do it because we worked together before, but it's a dude. And he was like, okay, like, can he do it? And I was like, yeah, but it's a boy. And he said, I mean, do you want to get this done or do you? So, like, you should just ask him. So I was really annoyed with myself, but I asked Michael, who I've also known for a very long time. We actually worked on another show together in this house called the Eviction Proof Peep Show Home. And also time was getting tight. So as an artist, I was actually a little embarrassed to be asking people at what seemed to me to be a last minute. But I asked Michael, and Michael said, yes, he would curate the show. He said, we've done this before, so I have a sense of how it's going to go. And then we had to hurry up and ask artists if they would participate. I was really nervous about that because, again, I was asking what felt to me like the last minute, and it was a concept that nobody could see they would really just have to say, like, yes, and go on the strength of Michael being an artist and a curator that a lot of people in the community knew, you know, having worked at Leeway, having met a lot of artists that way, people knowing my art, and just having faith in the idea. And to my great surprise, of the 15, 20 artists we asked, only one couldn't do it. And so the Colored Girls Museum was underway with no real idea, right, about how it was actually going to look. Because the concept that the artist got was teams of artists would be assigned to each room in the house, and the challenge for them was going to be to curate the space. So they could curate it with their artwork, but their artwork was not to be the subject of the exhibition. The ordinary, extraordinary color girl was to be. And so they would have to bring two to five ordinary colored girls objects into their space with them and then curate those objects with whatever story they were telling in that space. And so, you know, we gave them a lot to think about in a really truncated time period. And so that's how the 2015 show got underway. And of course, we were working until the day before we opened. And there were, you know, surprises and process I'll call them mishaps um, along the way. And they weren't really mishaps because one of the things about this space more now than then is that what we hope is that it also, in keeping with the celebration of the Ordinary Color Girl, that it's also a place where you can experiment. You can be in process here. So even though everything looks done, that you... You know, you feel as an artist, you can drop an idea that maybe doesn't quite land the way you want it to, but that there's an opportunity to revisit it and, like, experiment with how you might do it differently. And we certainly had that in the 2015 show. There are three floors to the museum, yes. right? And so if you could tell us about the rotation of certain installations and maybe those that are permanent. And then actually, a segue, you know, you mentioned, oh, it was a boy, but you also have a son, and there's a color boy's room in the house, so... Just kind of tell us about that. So there, there are three floors, and I always miscount the rooms, but I think there are eight. And so they're roughly then there are one, two, three spaces on each floor. And there is only one permanent exhibit in the Colored Girls Museum, and that is the tribute to the Washerwoman Room, which is now known as the Historic Record. And it is a permanent exhibit because 
it really establishes the economic foundation of the colored girl in this country. Her work as a washerwoman and then, you know, the continuation of our work as colored folk, particularly immigrant colored folk coming to this country, continue to do domestic work to take care of their families and communities. So that, that has not, interestingly enough, stopped. The form of labor has changed, but the work has not changed. And so after the emancipation, black men were not being hired. In fact, they were being rounded up and, you know, put in jail, which was really just like they were becoming enslaved again for loitering because no, nobody would employ them. And so that, let, that really left black women to return to doing the work that we had been doing while we were enslaved, which was taking care of the household, taking in the laundry, cooking, cleaning, all of those things. And this was really back-breaking, brutal work. And young girls started doing that work as soon as they could, like, reach an ironing board. So six, seven years of age, you know, young girls were helping their, 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 their mothers do this work. And that work built our first universities, built our schools, bought houses, put food on the table, kept people from getting lynched, funded the Great Migration. All of the, that work has just been so central to the economic life of the black community. And although people talk about it historically, I, you know, I think we feel here that it still doesn't get, you know, the recognition in terms of what it meant that it deserves, like what black women really gave to the community in terms of this sort of economic foothold in this country where we were enslaved. And so that's our permanent exhibit. And the other exhibits, while they don't turn over, this is the first year that I haven't been able to convince the curator to turn over every space at the same time, because he was like, that's really crazy. People don't do that. But I really, I, you know, I'm a process artist, so I really love it. I love taking the thing apart and then putting the thing back together again, but it is a little bit crazy. And so this time, the, the new show is um, Urgent Care, a Social Care Experience. And instead of turning over all the rooms, we're turning over two rooms on the bottom floor. We're leaving the fort on the third floor, but we're curating those walls. And a lot of the focus goes into the hallways of the museum. And then we leave the other rooms alone. But when March comes, then those rooms turn over. Uh, my son's room as a colored boy in the Colored Girls Museum was also on this tour for the last two shows because he, to my surprise, wanted his room on the tour. And I said, you know, you have to clean it. And he said, I'll clean it, which he only half did, really. But he said he wanted to be on the tour because, you know, he felt like this was a legacy project and he wanted to be part of it, which was really heartwarming to me because I knew that he knew what the Colored Girls Museum was, but I you know, his understanding of it in that way was just really, just really touched my heart. And so that's interesting because I have two sons and one daughter, and my children are always a part of any of the work that I've always done in one way or another. And so my older son actually does um, the newsletters for us, and as he likes to say, he produces brunch like at least two or three times a month. And, you know, and Dubois learned, started learning how to be a docent because he had to really, like, share his room with patrons. And that really gave rise, when you look at that door, to the Color Boy and the Color Girls Museum. And the articulation of the truth, right, you can't have a colored girl without a color boy. It's impossible. And there have been, you know, questions about that, even if they're not sort of, like, loud questions. I know that there are questions out there because they're too black men in leadership, even though the collective of the Colored Girls Museum is dominated by women and the board is all women. So it's a woman's collective. The Colored Girls Museum is looking at, looking at the world through the lens of the colored girl. So anybody who's rocking with us has agreed that what we're up to is looking at the world through that prism. That's the work of the museum. And, you know, what a colored boy sees looking through that prism you know, has, has as much relevance in terms of how we're being impacted in this world as colored girls, as colored girls. And I think that it's worthwhile having that conversation. Would I have planned for it? 
you know, absolutely not. It was not my plan at all. But it's really been an interesting learning experience, particularly since, you know, I really am always thinking about my sons. You know, I'm thinking about, you know, how they're going to engage with the colored girl throughout, throughout their lifetime. You know, what, you know, what they've learned from me, what they've learned from their sister, my sister friends, aunties, all of that and how this museum is also a really significant teachable moment for who they are as, as young men. And I guess in the other part of that is, you know, so often, you know, the colored girl is pictured alone. Probably one of the most iconic images last year that we all saw was the young woman in the sundress, like, standing in front of, like, a fucking flank of, like, shielded police officers, just, like, the most vulnerable you know, scary. I mean, there was something beautiful about it, but something really, like, sort of horrifying about it. And that's this image of, like, the black woman, she can, you know, she can do it all by herself. And I think that's a narrative that's really being pumped into our community. And I think it's important to, you know, to sort of interrogate where some of those narratives are coming from, like, how much of these are our stories and how much of these are stories that we're ingesting and spitting back out into the community. Um, nothing is true all the time. Very much of the time, colored girls are getting stuff done, and they might be getting a lot of stuff done by ourselves, but not all the time. Sometimes we actually do have the support of our brothers. Sometimes we do have the support of other people. And I think for the colored girl to do the work that she's intended to do is really important that everybody be on board looking at the world through her lens. Yesterday, you had mentioned kind of just how, and you're saying it now, just how, you know, the work you've been doing, this is just a fruition or an ongoing legacy, if you will. And, and this is just another manifestation of the work that you've been working on for, for decades. Maybe talk about, you know, moving to Philly and seeing Germantown, if it's changed at all. And, and the fact that we're also here during the Black Star Film Festival, what it means to be here in Philly in particular. Well, you know, Philly is... I, I've been here 16 years, and when people ask me where I'm from, I say I'm from Brooklyn. And I, I think that that's just like a Brooklyn thing to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't say I'm from New York. I say I'm from Brooklyn. And one of the reasons that I was drawn to Germantown is that in some way, I think it sort of reminded me of Brooklyn. I really can't even tell you why, but there was something about it. There was something about the energy of it, the sort of aesthetics of Germantown that just felt like it felt like home. And New York doesn't feel like home to me. Brooklyn feels like home to me. And, you know, Philadelphia, you know, on paper is like the first city, right? It's, it's a city rich in housing stock, a city that has a really complex and long history around race and religion. You know, a city that, like many of our big cities, has really been impacted by industry coming and industry going. And, you know, working class people, black people in particular, really being impacted by that, you know, in terms of, like, how poverty then has become entrenched in some of, in some, in some of these cities, particularly in Philadelphia. And I'm not talking about poverty of the people. I'm talking about resources because I grew up poor. And I had, you know, in terms of, like, money resources, but I never felt like I was a poor person. And I think that that's really a distinction that we have to make because so often people put their sort of, like, their perspective of, like, who you are on you. And you have to be really careful with poverty because it's a state of mind as much as it's it's a concrete circumstance having to do with who has what resources so I'm really careful about using that word. That said, you know, not having access to resources really is going to, like, jack the way that you're able to move in the world, for real. You know, it just makes it a lot harder to live. And in that way, you know, living in Philly and living in Brooklyn have a lot of similarity, you know. If I wanted, I, you know, we were living in Bed-Stuy before we came here, and I homeschooled my kids for one year, and one of the projects I had them working on was a mapping project just noticing, like, where did we get our stuff from? So we lived in Bed-Stuy, but I wanted to keep, like, a monthly journal. Where do we go to get our food? Does the money get spent in our community? Do we have to go someplace else? Where do we go for our entertainment? Where do we go when we want to go to a restaurant? So that they could, like, notice without me telling them, like, how does wealth get made in a community, 
right? If every and like, how do you hold on to your money if every time you want something, you got to spend it to go someplace else? You know, because you're not just spending money, you're also spending time, and time is currency. So here, living in Germantown, it's not unlike that at all. If I want something, I mean, I could probably take out stock in Uber right now because, you know, sometimes I get to the regional rail, but usually I'm running real fast. And so, you know, I'll call an Uber to take me to take me where I got to go. One of the reasons I love it that this museum is in Germantown is I don't always want to go downtown for my culture. And it's not even, like, what I want to see. Like, I you know, go into white spaces to see black art all the time. But there's something real different about being able to, like, one, have an experience of culture in a cultured place that's really speaking through you and to you, but also just at a basic level, like, being able to, like, have, just thinking of myself, oh, yeah, like, I can go see something in Germantown, and then I can go to a Germantown restaurant, and it's going to cost me five bucks to get home. I don't have to worry about parking. There's something about that, like, this real cool, the ability to do that. So, you know, we moved here after Twin Towers came down in New York City. That was the, that, that's what happened. Like, it was a really traumatizing experience. We got separated as a family. My daughter wound up staying with her teacher because you grow up in New York knowing Manhattan is an island, but it was something to experience it as an island because we couldn't get off of Manhattan for hours. Like it took us, I was working at the Children's Art Carnival at the time, and it took us seven hours to get home that day. It was crazy. My older son was at St. Anne's, and so he had a walk home that day. And the baby was at the daycare center. So my, my daughter didn't make it home. It took me seven hours to get home. Uh, my husband and and the baby, and I guess it took Eric about three or four hours to get home from downtown. And so, I mean, we stayed for maybe like seven months after that, but just even getting on the A train, looking at the alerts on the newsstand, because they always had that. So like before you went down the train station at Utica Avenue, it was like, is it a red alert day? Is it an orange alert day? It was really traumatizing. And so I said to my husband, like, I, I can't, you know, he worked in Brooklyn, so he didn't have to get on the train. I was like, I can't, I can't do it anymore. And he really didn't want to look at Philly. But I was like, it's right there. We could get to New York in two hours. It's affordable. We came. We looked. And, you know, in terms of the quality of life economically, like, Philadelphia is an incredible place to be in that respect. It's funny, though. You know how you, you might have a person in your family who, like, everybody knows if you really need something, you can go to that person. But, like, they are not a friendly human being. They're, like, they're like hugging a cactus, right? So that, I mean, <laughs> no disrespect. But that's kind of how I sometimes feel about Philadelphia. Like, Philly has accepted so many travelers into her bosom. But she's like that cactus. She's like, um, yeah, like, there's a spare bed. You can sleep on it. Good job clean up after yourself, yeah, bye. And so you're grateful, you know, for the, for the palette, but you're like, damn, do you like me? So that's how I sometimes feel about Philadelphia, like, uh, damn, do you like me? I don't, I, don't really, I don't really know. And I think that has a lot to do with why I still say I'm from Brooklyn. Though when I'm talking to folks in Philadelphia, I don't mention New York at all because I know Philadelphians don't want to hear it. They don't want to hear it. They don't want to hear it. And I don't blame them. You know, you don't want to hear it. You don't want to be compared to that stupid city. I got you. Yeah, I was reading, I guess, uh, last month, there was a UK journalist, Adam Smith, who was oh, the yeah. quote-unquote first European visitor <laughs> of the museum. I thought that in reading the article, I, one thing I appreciated was that, you know, he's talking about how this museum focuses solely on the the life of the art as opposed to, say, other modern museums where a lot of it leans towards the consumerism, you know, of the product. So his quote was, you know, to enjoy culture for culture's sake in Vashti's home felt like an honor. And then I don't know if you want to get into this, you tell me, but, you know, he mentioned that you started collecting paintings and sculptures after a personal tragedy. So, you know, we like to say here, the Color Girls Museum is really a love story. You know, people talk about what they feel here so often. They're like, I feel something. And I think, you know, my husband and I, you know, we raised our three children here. 
um, and he was killed in a car accident three years and four months ago, not far from here. And that, I mean, aside from the fact that he was my best friend, like he was my husband, but he was like that dude. Like he, I would say, I think, I think we should put all our stuff in storage and like turn the house into an iceberg. He'd be like, that's a great idea. Let's do that. He was my biggest cheerleader. He was just, he thought I could do anything. And he also, you know, when I talk about this ordinary colored girl business, I have a yearbook over there that he signed when we were in high school. Um, and if someone had said, you're going to marry that guy, you're going to grow up and marry that guy, I would have said, oh, you're out of your mind. This, he's crazy. I'm not. Like, that's never going to happen. So you never do know in this life. Um, but, you know, he, we met when I was in junior high school. And, you know, that's the most awkward time in your life. Like, you can't hide anything. You're just like a mess. Like, things are growing. They're out of proportion. You've got pimples. You don't know who you are. So... When I met my husband in Boston, and we moved in together, we broke, both broke out our yearbooks. His had nothing in it because he was a clown and nobody signed his book. But my, <laughs> you know, my help, my classmates, and on the very first page, he'd written this beautiful inscription. And he was one year ahead of me, so he was already a freshman at Tufts. So he must have come back and written in my yearbook. And, you know, basically it says, God, this beautiful, scatterbrained, brilliant young woman grows up and, you know, becomes amazing. I knew it, even though she tore a chunk out of my face and left a scar on my heart and on my face forever. But it was no big deal. Love, Albert. So my youngest son read that inscription. This was after my husband's death. And he said to me, Mommy, how come you didn't know Daddy liked you? Like, what 18-year-old would write such a thing? if he didn't like you. And I said, I just, like, I wasn't living in that space. I just, you know, my mom didn't like me. Like, she loved me, but she didn't like me. I knew she didn't like me. So there was a way that it just didn't occur to me that I could be liked like that. So I missed that altogether. And, you know, looking back at those middle school years when I met Albert, understanding that he saw me, like, when I was in that fragile space, you know, um, I recognize, wow, that kid, like, he liked me ordinary. He really liked, like, that ordinary, like, knock me, like, insecure, just, like, finding myself that ordinary chick. He liked her. He remembered her. And when he saw her again, he continued to love her. And there was some, there's something about that that was just really, like... Because I didn't know that then, you know, but there's something about that girl that got restored in recognizing something I didn't even see then, like something got fixed because my girlhood was certainly cut short and my girlhood was not all trauma, but it was pretty traumatic. I left home when I was 13 or I was asked to leave home when I was 13, but I also like went to a funky high school and became a freaky deaky artist and people liked me and people loved me in that school and um, and it really set the foundation for the way I think about what art can do in the world right now. And so the fact that another kid like me saw me and then saw me again, that was that was actually pretty extraordinary. And I perhaps loved that the most about who he was as a friend and a husband that I didn't need to be Vashti Dubois. I mean, that's a pretty heavy-duty name, right? And so even as an adult, like, when I became an artist, it wasn't like only a few people were like, oh, yeah, that's Vash. Like, people are like, Vashti Dubois. I'm like, fuck. That's like, that feels like an anvil, because, you know, you're not always fucking Vashti Dubois. Sometimes you're Vash. Sometimes you're like V. <laughs> you're like, whatever, so... Via the your profile on the Alliance, talks about how this is a living museum. It has been engineered to pop up in other cities and neighborhoods around the country, transforming ordinary spaces into a colored girls museum outpost, which collect, archive, and share the stories of indigenous colored girls in that place. If you could talk about that idea and something I always ask people I interview is like, how has your cultural background influenced your path and current work? You know, I like Star Trek, you know. 
I'm not a, a straight up hardcore sci-fi geek, but like I do live in the world of like make your life. So, you know, when I think about time and colored folks, I think about how we constantly have to assert that we will bend it, that we will make it our own. Because if we engage with time the way time is sort of like delivered to us, you know, we will always be out of time. There will never be enough time. So we really have to like reinvent how, how we're thinking about that. And we also have to reimagine this idea of boundaries and, you know, sort of think of the world, you know, as having none. When I was a girl, you know, my mom was really strict. And when I learned, was learning how to ride a bike, she would never let me go around the corner. And I, as a girl then, I remember thinking, even though I, like, I was in school at the time, that the world must be flat because my mom wouldn't let me go around the corner. Like, so I had this idea that I would somehow fall off, that that was the reason that I couldn't go around the corner. And I remember reading about Columbus and all that and really trying to make sense of it in my mom and this corner thing. So as I, as I became, you know, uh, an adult, like there were all these places in my life as like a colored girl that I wasn't supposed to go. There were all these places, these things that happened to me that I wasn't supposed to get beyond because they were, you know, that's a terrible thing and you don't survive it. Like you don't leave home at 13 and manage to graduate from a prestigious private school and go to great college and like live your life. Like you, all these things that you can't, you're not supposed to do that, not supposed to do that. And I did enough of those not supposed to do's to really, without necessarily understanding that I was doing it, began to like have a different sense of boundaries and have this feeling of like walking through walls. Like I said to somebody yesterday, I realized at some point, oh, like time is just an artificial construct. I can fuck with it because it's not real. It's like made by human beings. And the same thing about walls, that there's, you know, walls in terms of like space in the world that, you know, we're born free and that the colored girl herself, in as much as somebody like myself who had issues around home, so that's this museum's in a house, so like I'm establishing permanence because I didn't have it as a girl, but at the same time, you know, I'm suggesting that permanence itself is, illu is illusionary, right? And so this idea that the Colored Girls Museum should have outposts everywhere is this 21st century underground railroad idea that as the colored girl travels, that she's meant to be a nomad. You know, that the permanence that we require is actually an internal permanence. But sometimes you have to act out what is inside on the outside in order to fully grasp it inside of yourself and be safe with that. And so, you know, everybody can't come, you know, to Germantown. And everybody doesn't have, you know, three floors and a house to turn over to a colored girls museum. But you might have a shelf. You might have a room. You might have a place in your yard. And it's kind of like it's a space where a colored girl in Chicago, a colored girl in New York, a colored girl in Nairobi, like you know that you can arrive in those places and you can go find that outpost. And what that outpost represents is that other colored girls have been there and they know you. And they're holding that space for you. And you can go on from there. So that's why it was conceived as, you know, as a child, like, who could be everywhere in the world? Who could be, you know, because the colored girl has to be nimble. You know, she has to be able and willing, you know, to pack up her shit at a moment's notice and be someplace else. And I think that that's a good thing. I think that that's all right. And you asked about, you know, culture, right? It's so funny I was born in I was born in Brooklyn. I was, you know, born in America. But you know, there are things that are in my knowledge bank that I know have absolutely nothing to do with what I learned in this lifetime. Now my mom was from Mahoskey, North Carolina, and so from her I learned the conventions of hospitality, interestingly enough. And my mom didn't like people. But she was very hospitable like she did the things you know she ironed the sheets she made the bed she kept a clean house she was a good cook 
And I, I noticed and appreciated those things, but I also, and I noticed the impact on the few people who did come into our, our home space. So in terms of culture, like in a real way, I grew up in Brooklyn, an urban space, but I consider myself like a Southern girl. Like, it's really funny. I've never even, you know, I've been to North Carolina a few times. Uh, so in some ways you would say I know nothing about the South, but I feel like the South is in me. And that in that southernness being in me is my Africanness, you know, is my Native Americanness. It's like it's all in there. My, you know, the ways in which I'm drawn to, you know, remedies of the earth, the ways in which I'm drawn to the land. You know, my mom, you know, they, you know, that she grew up, they grew, they grew tobacco. And my mother dipped snuff and smoked and chewed tobacco the whole nine yards. And... Um, it is only recently that, and I, I hated the dirt actually because of my mother. In her older, in her elder years, as she was going blind, like she would just work her garden outside. She would be outside for hours and hours just working her garden. And that's when she was most at peace with herself. Me, you see all that land out front? When we moved into this house, I said to my husband, let's turn that bitch into a rock garden because you're not going to take care of it. And I don't know, I don't know a fig from, like, I don't, I don't know, I don't know weed from nothing. It's not happening. I will not be digging in the dirt. And, you know, he insisted, oh, I want a garden, I want a garden. He never took care of it. It was like, you know, frigid jungle habitat out there. You could hear the monkeys. The grass was so high. I've probably done a better job of getting it taken care of, sadly, since his death, because I embarrass easily, but my husband had no embarrassment about him. He knew no shame, so it could get up to his waist. But of late, it's so bizarre. It's like, and I really feel like it's like our ancestors and our history is always speaking through us. It's a sense of duty that I go outside and I identify what I can of the weeds, because it's actually somebody who tends the garden. But... You know, I'm drawn to the land in a way that I never was and never would have thought I would be. And I, and I, I know in some part of me that, that putting my hands in the dirt is important, even if only for a little while, that that's part of my culture. It's part of the gift of my mother and my mother's mothers to me to be able to do that. You know, you look at this apothecary, you look at this idea of a good night's sleep, it really comes from, you know, my mother had all of these remedies. There were things that she knew. You had to know things because we couldn't go to a white doctor, any of those things, right? So you had to be able to have your own cures. I'm very interested in that, you know. You know, the, the, the parts of this museum that I deal with, you know, there's some spaces. Michael is our lead curator, and he curates these spaces. But when I'm, you know, when we're preparing for shows and I'm talking to Ian about music, I'm, I'm talking about atmosphere, like how are we setting the stage? It's, it's, it's theater, but it's also this, like, ritual here. There are things that we need to do in order to be ready and in order to speak to different parts of the spirit. Is it something that I've studied? Interestingly enough, No. And many of the things are things that I know, and I can't tell you how I know them. They're things that I just know how to do. And I think those are the memories that we have, and that's why we did this show, This Leaving Now, A Good Night's Sleep. Because I think when you get that good night's sleep, you start getting your memories back. You start getting your stories back. Your people start talking to you. And in terms of culture, when I think about culture, I. I think of myself as a Southern girl, but I also think of myself as black, which is not considered a culture, right? But if you know what I'm talking about, you know, in Brooklyn, it's like black is a culture. Yeah. Like it's got, it's its own swag. It's like, oh, you black, and you know what the people are talking about. So I feel all of those things. Like I feel the blackness in the way I feel about music and the way music moves me. You know, I feel the blackness in the books that I read, the poetry that I love. You know, the beauty of colored girls and colored boys, I was like, that's the blackness. Like, there's just, like, when you, when you, you see it, you know what the hell it is. So, like, those two sides of myself, like, that Southern girl don't wear no damn shoes if she can help it. You know, she will tie up a dress in a minute or put on some damn, you know, work boots. And would let her beard grow if she could get away with it. But they take too many pictures to get away with that right now. 
But, and we'll probably, you know, smoke a pipe, seriously. Like, sometimes I can just smell it, and I'm like, I'm not a smoker. What the hell is going on here? So the culture thing is just, it's just real. And I feel like the older I get, the more it's just, like, coming out of my pores. I don't know where the hell it's coming from, but it's crazy. Thank you, Vashti. So, you know, I guess we're kind of closing out here. Aside from, you know, the, the possibility of traveling exhibit, or you tell me if it's already been in the works, but what are the future plans for the museum and the location it exists now and any parting words for the audience and what they can look forward to from the Colored Girls Museum? So, you know, Wendy, you know, and I are sort of hatching this plan, really, really excited about it, even though I have to say virtual reality, I'm like, I really got to wrap my mind around that, right. but just as like a concept, because it, there's something about that that's a little freaky deaky. But again, but you know, the part, again, the part of me that's like a sci fi girl and believes that, you know, the colored girl really is, really has the capacity to like rock time in a different kind of way. I feel like, well, why not be in that space? Not everybody's going to be able to come to this museum, but how cool would it be? Like if that fourth wall that is the front of the house drops down and you can like walk into these rooms and you can check out the things in this apothecary station. And you can go up to the third floor and like walk into those baskets and look at those notes hanging from the ceiling. That would be crazy. How fantastic for girl, you know, for the colored girl around the world to be able to submit objects online that are significant to her experience of being a colored girl and tell us why. And we can go through the gallery and look at those things. So that's in the works. Like we're gonna get that done. It may take us about a year to do it because that's going to be a pretty sophisticated platform to pull that off but like really really excited about that we did a color we did our first color girls festival it was curated by ian friday uh last july so looking forward to doing the next massive color girls museum festival because that was so much fun you know because part of what we want to do like this is a museum, but it really is so much more that we're up to than that. And, and, and a big part of what my thoughts are always around it, like building intentional community, creating the space for intentional community. We're all, so many of us are talking about gentrification. Gentrification is intentional community. And you know what? Colored people want intentional community, too. Like, I want to be able to buy property in this area before I can't. So that middle-aged women like myself, who may decide they want to, you know, they want to be in a co-living situation, can do that and can survive, right? And can be part of a community and bring their expertise and power as human beings to a community. You know, many of our artists here are working out of home studios. We want to be able to offer makerspace, and then out of that makerspace, be able to have those artists teach classes because they have, you know, they're excellent and they have great expertise and, you know, where do we have opportunities as colored folks to just be not just, you know, creating these kinds of spaces, however sort of like dynamic and new an idea it is, you know, to me the new, you know, like the some of the most important thing we can do is understand how, you know, how art can drive cultural development in a really powerful way and how it can hold space for colored folks in our community. You know, so many of our community members, and this is something I was thinking about as a result of yesterday's conversation, you know, when they see, when we see the arts come into our community, we, we, we become consciously and or unconsciously afraid because when cultural institutions come into our community, they typically displace us. So my hope here, my deepest intention here is that we will reverse engineer gentrification, you know, and what we'll be doing is really establishing a foothold in a community that's already predominantly black and really be able to like not just hold on to that, but bring the resources that typically accompany neighborhoods that are in transition when other people are coming. How can we create those conditions for ourselves and how can a practice, an event, a story like this be a principal driver in making that happen. To me, that would be really, really, that would be a really powerful thing to do. I love the arts. I live and breathe it. And I say all the time, like, this is the Colored Girls Museum. But even as a museum, this chick is working. Like, she ain't the barns where you just come in and you get to look at her being all cute on the walls. Now, this chick hikes up her skirt and she's like, what are we going to do now? Like... <laughs> 
but what we gonna do? Oh yeah, you did miss a spot, but what we gonna do? And so her intentions, this colored girls museum's intentions, are to establish a real serious foothold in this community and in other communities and be in support, uh, just like that, just like that um, permanent exhibit upstairs, like be that economic driver in our in our communities, take care of ourselves and take care of our communities. So, and that's a way we can take care of ourselves. Too many of our, you know, our aging folks who have all this expertise and talent and, you know, and just energy to give to communities are really finding themselves falling on hard times and community doesn't even know it. But I know it because I'm one of them folks. But I think on that, that point of VR, though, and everything you're talking about, it kind of lends itself to where you're talking about Star Trek, though, too. Like, you know what I mean? Like, make that the reality here and let everyone around the world see it. Definitely. And we've had a great time being here in Philly. This is the Uncle Nacho Show, live from the Colored Girls Museum. Thank you so much. We've been with Bastide Dubois. And this is a wrap. Hi. <laughs>